Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show with Chad Sturgill, Mike Johnson, and our host, Tom Dupree. We're going to start the day off today with a soundbite, and here we go. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary Buttigieg, I've been driving an electric car for 10 years, and I've had solar panels for 15 years, and I'm really bullish on technology and the way it could help make our country energy independent or more energy independent, but I'm really alarmed at sort of the naivete of those who are uh, promoting rapid adoption of these technologies with our existing infrastructure. President Biden signed a non-binding executive order stating that 50% of, of vehicles sold in the United States should be electric by 2030. Do you support that? Yes. And he also said that by 2035 that 100% uh, of the federal fleet federal government fleet should be electric. Do you support that? Yes. So um, which uses more electricity? We're talking about residential electricity here. A refrigerator when it's running or an electric car when it's charging in your garage? I would expect a car. Uh, would you say it uses twice as much or 25 times as much? I would think closer to 25 times as much. Yeah. It's, it's actually 50. Uh, in, at the instantaneous moment, mm. but over the course of a year, if I take the numbers from the U.S. Department of Energy about the average household, how many vehicles they own and how far they drive, over the course of a year, uh, an American household would use 25 times as much electricity for their electric car as they would for their refrigerator. Uh, if they had 100% adoption. If, if and the average family has two vehicles, and this would be if the average family had two electric vehicles. Do you think it would strain the grid if everybody plugged in 25 refrigerators in every household? Well, if we didn't make any upgrades to the grid, sure. I mean, if we had yesterday's grid with tomorrow's cars, it's not going to work. It's one of the reasons why we believe that infrastructure includes electrical infrastructure and argued for that to be included, as it thankfully was in the bipartisan law. Do you, do you think by 2030, which is when Biden says 50% of uh, cars sold should be electric, do you think the grid will be capable of handling electric cars? It's going to need to be, and we're working with the Department of Energy every day. We've established a joint office of energy and transportation to map out some of the needs. Obviously, some of this gets outside of my lane, and we've been discussing with, uh, for example, the truck stops that are uh, looking at what their power needs would need to be at an interchange where today, uh, they're, you know, they're mainly filling up on gas in order to accommodate that. And then, as you mentioned, a lot of the scenario for this is also residential. Uh, but it's also worth pointing out that uh, while a typical driver uh, who adopts electric is using more electricity, at the end of the day, they're using less energy because of the efficiency benefits of getting that energy produced at utility. The problem is that we, don't, we don't have the capacity to produce that energy. You aptly use the word need. You could say want as well. It, there's needs and wants to make this fantasy work by 2030. But the reality is the capability is not going to be there. The average uh, household uses 17% of their electricity for air conditioning. And um, that would mean the average household uses 1,870 kilowatt hours per year for air conditioning. If that average household plugged in electric cars, do you know how much more electricity they would use in comparison to the air conditioning that air conditions their whole house? No, but again, I would emphasize it will well, let be me help less you. Let me help you overall. with that first before we go on because the numbers are important. It would take four times as much electricity to charge 
the average household's cars as the average household uses on air conditioning. Do you think that could be so? If we reach okay, the goal by uh, 2030, that Biden we're listening has to a, a 50% Representative guy. Thomas Massey of Northern Kentucky. Uh, I don't know which district he's in, fifth or some. No, it's not the fifth. It, I'm not sure what number that is up there, but that's uh, pre, uh, Representative Massey uh, uh, questioning uh, the Secretary Pete Buttigieg about adoption of electric. So I want to say one thing at the outset. The secretary is incorrect in saying that um, it's more efficient to use electricity to run a car. And for those of you who are not that familiar with how the electric grid works, um, in this country, we have big power plants in fairly centralized locations that typically have to burn either natural gas or coal to generate electricity. Um, the effectiveness, that is transferring that heat uh, to a turbine, to turn a turbine and produce electricity, you're getting maybe somewhere around 50%, if that, of the uh, energy transferred into electric power. Now, the next thing that has to happen is that power goes through transmission lines. Transmission lines are not the lines that you see in your neighborhood, typically, unless there is a transmission line cutting through. Those are those tall, uh, they're on tall towers, sometimes 100 feet up in the air, and they have these cables that run high up in the air. Okay, now, if you've ever noticed on a, a very cold day, and it, maybe there's been some precipitation, and you drive by where there's a transmission line, sometimes you'll see steam rising off of those cables where the, um, where the ice is melting off. Well, guess what? That is electricity being turned into heat because the power running through the lines generates heat. Well, guess what happens? You're losing electric power. The next thing that has to happen is that when those um, transmission lines reach what are called substations, and those things are, genera- are, are running power at 200,000 watts or some big number, six figures, they come into the um, into the, what's called a substation. You've seen those. They're places, uh, sometimes there's one down here in Chevy Chase behind, uh, you know, back in there behind Josie's, uh, down near where, uh, what's the street that cuts through? North Ashland yeah. and Sunset. Yeah, it's right there. That's a substation. What happens there? Transmission power goes into those big canisters that you see. Those are capacitors. They're converting that high energy power coming off the transmission line into local power. It goes through the local lines, in most cases, at 480 volts. That is what's called three-phase power, uh, and it travels those lines. Why do those things have big 
uh, oil-filled heat sinks on the side of them because when you take down power, once again, you're creating heat. What happens when heat's created? You lose electrical power. So there, and then it comes into your house, and then it goes through the wires in your house, and everything along that way is funneling that power down to a usable wattage. What happens? Every time that happens, heat is is created. Whenever electricity is creating heat, it is losing its punch a little bit. So then that thing's got to go through a charger and be converted from AC into DC to go into your car battery. By the time that power, which came from a power plant using coal or natural gas as, as the generation thing, and gets into a car battery, you're at around 8 to 10% of what the original power that was burned to create that power. You have lost most of it through heat. Now, if you use a fossil fuel in your car, namely diesel, gasoline, some cars can use compressed natural gas, you are way closer to the combustion source. And there are way fewer places to lose because it's all about BTUs, British thermal units. Now, this is, I've got an article here from the uh, Wall Street Journal. OPEC, this is, uh, when was this? I don't know. Uh, Uh, The 13th? Yeah, April 13th. Okay, that's yesterday. OPEC sees oil demand climbing at odds with Saudi-led production cut. No, it's not. The Saudis know that. They'd rather sell more for for more or less for more money. Yep. And guess what? COVID made the whole car industry like that. When they start telling you three years down the road, it's still supply chain disruptions, don't believe it. It's a created supply chain disruption. That's going on with oil. Mm -hmm. Now, and the production cartel, and nobody knows more about oil and where it's getting used in the world and what the demands are than OPEC. We don't know more than OPEC knows. They know more than we, we know. Because they sell to everybody, and they buy from everybody. You think Russia is being hurt by these sanctions? Russia is natural resource rich. They can barter if they have to. All right. The point here is that the production cartel still expects demand for crude to rise this year. I don't care what the Department of Energy says, the Biden administration, half to two-thirds of the investment bankers in the world Big corporations, they're all speaking the same language. Oh, we all have to go to electric cars. Electric cars are the most inefficient way to transfer BTUs to power. Everything in the energy world, including electricity, is about BTUs. And no matter what any utility says, oh, we're we're 
converting over to uh, wind and solar. Let's think about how all that has to get produced. It's got to be produced at factories. These factories, a lot of what has to be done is this stuff has to be mined. You have to take it out of the ground, lithium, those kinds of things. You think that's being done by electric-powered bulldozers? Think again. Um, you're being told that this thing is, is imminent, it's going to happen, and it is inevitable. No, it's not. And despite the fact that uh, uh, Representative Massey declares himself to be bullish on the technology, I think he's bullish on it for him because he probably thinks it's cool driving around in a Tesla, although I do think he's probably even smarter than that. But this is a pipe dream, and I don't know how you will put enough uh, solar panels out or enough um, wind towers out to do what they say is in you. Just ask somebody who lives in the middle of a bunch of these windmills what it's like. Not nice. I mean, these, these things are create all kinds of hazards. The ones on the off the shore up in the, the northeast, we're seeing dead whales washing up. And all of a sudden, all these lefties that were huge environmentalists, when it comes to this stuff, they're turning a blind eye. So... We believe, and it's our belief, that energy, fossil fuel energy, I believe this personally, and I've done a lot of research on it, and I've invested in these projects, that fossil fuels are actually the most environmentally friendly and efficient way to generate motive power, which is exactly what you're talking about with these cars. Now, hybrid, different thing. If you want to run a car that uses gasoline to drive the car and charge a battery and that the battery will run the car part of the time, that's the way uh, diesel locomotives operate. And they've done it for years. Electricity is actually what's driving the wheels on those things. And one of the reasons they it's good is because you can power it way down. It's what's got a capstan on it. And the torque can be very low on it, which you can't do with a direct drive engine. So these diesel locomotives, actually, the wheels are being driven by electricity because the the diesel engine is powering uh, an electric generator. But aside from that, the idea that we're going to charge these cars off our uh, home plug and get on down the road is ludicrous right before i i do want to talk on the on oil prices specifically before i do that um when you were talking uh something occurred to me so you're, so all when electricity's trans transmitting you have all these conversions energy conversion and you have energy that's lost in the conversions it's the same thing with with most things in life, but investing too, you're talking about getting close to the source. So you think of, 
think of packaged products. What is that? I mean, that's how many derivatives or hands has that passed through? And what do you lose? You lose efficiency because of, you know, What did Warren Buffett say? It's like a bar of soap. Yeah, the more you touch it, the smaller it gets. And so it's as as money uh, passes through hands, it becomes less efficient. And so package products... Um, in general, they will become less efficient to accomplish whatever that package's goal is. Um, and to that point, you know, we like to invest in individual. We like to invest in companies. And so, when we're talking about energy, we're talking about energy companies, companies that do specific things. Correct. You know, be it pipelines or exploration and production, integrated oil companies. Refining. Refining. They do specific things. Um, But for uh, oil prices in general, so you go back to 2014 when oil prices peaked, they they crashed in 2020, went negative. And during that time, the whole industry started running leaner, more efficient. Uh, just, I mean, they, it, it's like in any industry, you have fat times, companies get bloated. You have lean times, they run more efficiently. The big ones survive, the good ones survive, good management. And that's what we're seeing now. But you look at the commodity, because these good companies are dealing in a volatile commodity. They've always dealt with a volatile commodity. They know how to deal with that. But the commodity price itself l- lends to profitability, obviously, because that's what they deal or in. losses or losses. And you, the big picture view now is you've had such a long period of underinvestment in oil production um, that now we're starting to see, like with what all o- kinds of energy production, all. Coal, gas, we got tons of gas. I mean, that's not a problem. It's, yeah. it's the oil and the coal where you've seen that. Right. And and with oil, you're seeing things like OPEC, you know, cutting in order to prop up prices because, like you said, they would rather have high prices um, and, and Russia. Um, but the industry as a whole, um, you'll see CapEx – run through the system, you'll see companies start spending Tell them what CapEx more is. capital expenditures, expanding production. Uh, you'll see investment in plant and equipment. Yeah. You'll see companies start to spend there when the return is higher than other relative returns in the market. Couldn't agree with you more. And so what they've had to do because the banking side of it has been constrained because a lot of banks don't want to loan to this stuff right now. A lot of your big funds are against fossil fuels. They're having to self-finance a lot of projects. So what does that mean? That an internal project has to have a higher hurdle uh, and a higher uh, promise of profitability. They cannot afford to drill dry holes. Wildcatting, as it used to be known, is becoming a thing of the past. That's why we own some of these companies that are very focused on efficiency. Well, it's a tr- <clears throat> sorry, it's a trend in the the industry. The the I guess all the easy coal, the easy oil is has been obtained, or and uh, they're having to be more creative, more efficient with how they actually extract everything from the ground and from uh, from the um, you know, parts of the world that uh, whether it be 
in the ocean or wherever they're they're having to to be more efficient with how they they take it out of the out of the ground or out of the uh, ground underneath the ocean. So that's one factor. Just something I heard on the way to work today on the radio is that Russia has seen their highest uh, volume of energy of of oil in particular exports in three years. So back to your point earlier about sanctions not really working. Our congressman's been on this show. I've questioned him about sanctions. He basically buys into the administration viewpoint that sanctions are hurting Russia, but based on what you're saying, evidently not. Right. I mean, you're always going to have buyers uh, if the price is right. And uh, that's, I mean, you're seeing India, you're seeing, of course, China and other countries that, that Plus need the to other import thing oil. Is it's, since they can't deal in dollars, now you're getting oil getting settled outside of the dollar which it's been settled throughout the world in dollars for years. So the sanctions are having the effect of de-dollarizing the oil economy. That's absolutely right. And what the other comment to make or the other point to make about this is the supply demand gap between the world energy demand and the growth that uh, growth rate we're expected to see really just going out to 2030. There's no way in the world, even if, uh, if the governments around the world continue to pour money into Developing alternative energy. If we build lots of solar farms and uh, put up a lot of windmills it, in in the ocean as well as on land, we're still going to have a huge deficit between supply and demand, and that cannot be bridged. The projections I show are thirty years from now, we're still going to have a deficit. Right. You've so. been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, and our host Tom Dupree. If you'd like to come see us and let us take a look at your portfolio. Call us, 859-233-0400. You can also schedule an appointment directly on our homepage of our website, dupreefinancial.com. This is our financial hour, and it is powered by Dupree Financial Group. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. You can sit around and wait for the phone to ring. Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us for this segment, Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, our host, Tom Dupree. We are powered by Dupree Financial Group. All right. 
I'm getting ready to go out to the West Coast and uh, Northern California to be exact. And this, of course, Huey Lewis and the News. Huey Lewis, born in New York City, but grew up in Marin County, which is just right across the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, the north side of the bay. And, uh, you know, what a guy. I mean, this guy, if you read about the stuff he did in his life, I mean, when he was young, he would he went over to Europe with no money and made enough money busking in Ma- Madrid to get to, to, to fly back to the U.S. Knew all kinds of people in the music business just because he went and introduced himself. Dave Edmonds and different people. And so uh, he's really a self-made guy. And, of course, this song uh, was used in the soundtrack of the movie Back to the Future uh, starring uh, Michael... Michael J. Fox. Yeah, and the old guy. Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. And uh, the old guy came out in uh, <laughs> 1985. I was living in Houston, Texas. And so one of the things, <laughs> the car went forward to like 1999 or something, which was 14 years in the future. McFly, you know, Marty McFly. But uh, <laughs> then they go forward and the guy's got a DeLorean and he's putting trash from the uh, family throwing the trash out in the in the fuel tank. It's converting trash into energy, which, you know, that was sort of a prophetic thing. But anyway, um, the point is that there's no point. And uh, I was going to say, what is the point? The, the thing we were going to talk about is, um, uh, what were we going to talk about? Interest rates. We talk about interest rates, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, one of the things that we said in our client letter recently, and, you know, I hope we're right, but um, I believe, based on 45 years of experience, that we are going to see lower interest rates. Um, Just anecdotally, it seems that many things about the economy are slowing down and that when that happens, you have, I'm not going to claim we're going into a quote recession, but you have recessionary pressures that lowers the demand for money and begins to slow the economy down you have money that begins to stop chasing goods and services, thereby driving up prices. And you have a slowing in inflation. A slowing in inflation is going to be followed by a commensurate decline in interest rates. That is our belief here. You know, I mean, you could say, well, there's a thousand ways you could try to shoot holes in it. I will say this, having lived through the greatest decline in interest rates in mankind, that is from mid-double-digit interest rates in 1981 down to basically zero a couple of years ago, it's not always a straight line. Then, in a sense, we went up in rates every bit as dramatically as we did in the late 70s, early 80s, even more dramatically 
in percentage terms. And to where you go from zero to four and a half percent on the treasury, that was a bigger rise than we got in the early 80s from, say, 6% to 15%. If you think about it proportionally, it was much bigger. But the the trip back down from those high levels was not always a straight line. It looks like a straight line if you look at a 40-year chart. But if you go granularly into it, there would be times in there where, you know, the Treasury bond might back up 50 to 75 basis points in yield, go back up before it kept going back down again. So you would have these disruptions. And I'm sure we'll have them again on our way down. You know, we got to 328 on the 10-year the other day. Today we're at like 353, somewhere in there. Uh, It's going to bounce around, and that's to be expected. But I do believe that the thing is lower over time. And I also believe that the place to be is in duration. I think you want to have exposure to things that will do well as rates go lower. So throw it out, guys. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> well, no, because you look at uh, look at some things that we own in the portfolio without naming names. These are companies. What are you playing it close to the vest or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. I'm just checking. So, yeah. so come see us. Come to see find us. Out. Exactly. Yeah, that's the nugget. Yeah, no. uh, exactly. Mike has all the answers. <laughs> no, come see if us. You can see your eyes. Right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> now you, you look at um, some of the things that we own in the portfolio. It's it's with that thesis in mind because what what are we looking for when you get right down to it? We're looking for a repeatable income stream and hopefully to- we're looking for total return hopefully price appreciation over time in addition to some sort of consistent income stream. Now, now one of the things I've said on the, if you listen to the, if you go on hold here is that I begin to conclude over the last 20 years that income is the most important component of a retirement portfolio. Growth is secondary. Now it's not one and two, it might be one and one a, so the growth is not far behind. It might be 51 to 49, but there are elements. You have to have both, yeah. but income is very important. Well, and, and but the, uh, that cuts to a good question, though. How does the growth come? You know, because let, let's look at a, a, a company that's consistently raised its dividend. You, you have the income component. You, you also go. have the growth of the income, right. which which comes first, the you know chicken or the egg, which can lead to price appreciation, growth in share price through the rise in income stream. But one of the things that kind of led me to this conclusion is that doing these Monte Carlo simulations where we look at, which is an element of our financial planning yeah. thing that we do here too. If you look at these uh, Monte Carlo simulations over a long period of time, if you're always just in growth, it looks like, it the the line on that looks sort of like the um, inverse of the line on interest rates. It steadily looks like it's down over forty years. That looks like the growth of growth companies looks like it's steadily up over that many. T- you, but you get looking and you get these big drops in there. And the problem is, if you're deriving all of your distribution 
from the sale of your growth securities over time, you can get really hammered in, in, in a bad hole if all of your distribution is coming from the liquidation of securities. What happens when you need your distribution and the market's down 20%, 25%? You've just sold something at the low point. That's why we also focus on dividends, which does not require the sale of a security to take your distribution. And it's those Monte Carlo simulations, which is a study of history and rates or, and uh, returns, rather, and what it's done to someone – if you're if you're on an upswing and it stays on an upswing, you're good. It's not gonna you can take it out of growth. But all you got to do is get a big drawdown. You can get really behind the eight ball. Yeah, it's it's uh, w- what the Monte Carlo is looking at really sequence of return. Sequence risk. of return risk. Yeah, the risk of sequence of return. <clears throat> right. So you could have twelve percent average over twenty years and could have gotten hammered because you had a twenty five percent down when you pulled money out. Right. And, and that's that's the, the the real challenge with retirement investing. When you get into the phase of drawing, you know, an income, taking regular distributions, the average doesn't matter. It's the sequence to get to that average. And it's more really the compounded rate of return kind of thing. Yeah. But, but Mike, that, that can be disturbed by withdrawals. Go ahead. It's not just when you get to the point where you're taking the money out. It's the few years leading into when you start taking Absolutely. money out. That make a difference as well. I mean, it starts then. Your planning needs to start before you actually retire. Absolutely, and you know the the idea of you know um, taking taking gains, moving that to the sidelines. Um, <laughs> be careful with that with that notion because a you're banking on gain. You're banking on two things: one that you're going to have gains that you're going to be able to bank. Uh, and two, that you're going to be able to bank enough to add to your cushion when the market's down. And markets inevitably will do what you don't expect them to do. And we've had long periods where growth did not grow. And during those periods, that's where you you need that income stream. You know, you could have two portfolios side by side. The... uh, Average return on one could have been over the last nine, let's say 10 years, 6%. And you could have another one next to it where the average returns have been 11%. And you could have less money in the one that's averaged 11%. And people don't understand that. They say, no, that's not possible. It's absolutely possible. And here's where it's possible. That you might have had to invade the principal of the one that's that's averaged 11% over 10 years at inopportune times, that despite the fact that the portfolio that's still intact, because now we're talking about, you know, dollar cost averaging or or, uh, what's the other one, Uh, dollar cost averaging and time-weighted rates of return, that that one could be worth less money because of the sequence of the returns and the times when you had to withdraw money. So we're trying to even some of that out. And sometimes on our return on our returns, we might see a slightly lower return than the S&P 500. It's because we have tried to take a growthy, income-y portfolio and 
Did you just bond, make those words up? Yeah, bond <laughs> portfolio. Bond eyes it a little bit with <laughs> using equities. I, I said it wrong, but it, it's never wrong. The point <laughs> is, we're trying to create enough dividend that we're not wholly reliant on the growth component of the portfolio to produce the distributions. Now we might be a little relying on it, but we don't want to be a hundred percent relying on it. Well, a couple of things on that. First of all, each client is going to have a different overall objective. And if you were comparing your return to the S and P 500, that could be the totally wrong benchmark to use. Absolutely. If you're near yeah. retirement or in retirement, totally. because you don't have time to recover from if, if the sequence goes against you and we have losses to start right when you go into retirement. So that's something people can lose sight of by watching financial TV uh, reading, you know, seeing, seeing stories on the internet about how the S&P did and then comparing themselves to how they did with the S&P. What matters is your benchmark, not the S&P uh, necessarily. Uh, the other thing, too, is that we're, we're not even talking about in, inflation here. And I think what happens, people think about positive returns. Uh, we're getting 3% on our on our bonds or 4%, but inflation's 4 or 5%, so they're actually losing purchasing power. So when we're looking at, at creating an income stream, we're trying to create an income stream that's going to keep up or exceed inflation too. And that's an important factor you can't overlook. It's hard to do. Well, yes, Chad, you, you pulled uh, an article was talking about I bonds, which, which we've mentioned before when that first, you know, happened when, when the I bonds were yielding over 9%, I guess that was back in August, September last year, somewhere around there. We were talking about how that's going to be a short term thing. Um, let's see, the, the newest uh, is going to be what, about 3.5%? 3, 8, right? uh, when they come out in May, about 3.8%. And that's 3. down 8%. from 9.62 so, six months ago. It, so to your point, you're, you're talking about short-termism. Um, so last year, nine over 9% looked great. And so the idea, hey, I'm going to go into this, I'm going to get 9%, and you know we will deal with it later. Now you're dealing with it with inflation where it is, um, and it's you're you're losing purchasing power now. Uh, now the I bond technically is adjusted for inflation, but again, inflation is very individualized. Well, and also on that, the you could only put ten thousand dollars in it. So yeah, ten thousand exactly. dollars at nine percent or nine and a half percent, even if you could sustain it, isn't going to provide for your retirement. That's right. It's great to have, it, but it's fleeting, and it it's only going to be going to apply to a small amount of your retirement money. And and so. You have to think long-term. This is long-term investing, long-term investment plan, financial planning. All of this is long-term. The market does stuff every day, intraday. You have things happening in the market, and you, that can provide opportunities. But what you don't need to do is dismantle a long-term plan for something that you're seeing short-term um, because of something you've watched, because of, you know, you don't like how you feel, um, emotional, have you do the exact opposite of what you should do long-term. Yeah, and, and let me tell you something. Dealing with somebody's emotions ain't easy. I mean, and, and I, I mean, you have to deal with your own emotions, and then you have to try to help people deal with theirs. And I get it. I get it. You know, we're dealing with somebody's money. People will never get rid of the idea that their retirement account is like a big bank account that they can write a check on at any given time. So they're going to look at, as they say, the bottom line, which is 
what's on the statement at the end of the month. If it goes down, bad. If it goes up, good. And what they don't understand is that there are some periods during which it, you have to be counterintuitive about it and look at these down periods as time where you can position yourself in things that can potentially outperform over a great long period of time. Last summer, we had a severe downturn in some of the things we owned. Yeah, it was agonizing. But as we looked at it more closely, we realized we saw some buying opportunities. And the history of our firm in the time that it's been around has seemed to be the thing that these downtimes, these bad markets, have been remarkably good opportunities to, to position ourselves in things that will outperform over time. You analyze what is uh, the cause of the big decline, see if it's something you think is temporary or permanent, and if it's temporary, you view it as a buying opportunity, you, you add to it, and that's how you make money. You, you are thankful for that opportunity to buy things at a cheaper price. How do you like them, Louis? I like them. <laughs> There's always something to like. There's always something on sale in the market. That's yeah. one thing, and we... Uh, sometimes there's a lot more to choose from than other times. You have to look a lot harder at other times, but there's always something to buy. You know, one thing about Chad, he's kind of a recent addition to our team, but he is a good sport. We can kid with him, and that goes a long way in 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 this. Um, in the world of Dupree, yeah, you got to have yeah, a sense you, of humor. You have to have a sense of humor, and you have to have a, a thick skin fairly in this thick. industry. Not not <laughs> totally, but fairly thick. But I would simply say, and I'm going to be real honest with you. Please do. I always say that to get a reaction from my wife. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is this is a balancing act. You're going to buy some growthy things that don't pay a dividend. You're hoping to make a pop on those. But it's not necessarily for the sake of, of getting dividends from them, it's increasing the value of the capital over time that after you sell that, you might have more money to invest in something that pays a dividend. We like dividends, not going to lie to you, but we also like growth where we've done our uh, research and feel like it's a solid business. It just Berkshire Hathaway does not pay a dividend. We got it in the portfolio. They own a lot of stuff that does pay dividends in their portfolio. They just don't pay dividends to their clients. I don't know why they don't, but they don't. They like having cash, and they don't pay a dividend. We still own Berkshire. I even look at it as a bond-type thing. Cincinnati Financial, small dividend, not any big dividend. Uh, and here He's I'm telling giving all names. your secrets, oh, Mike. I'm sorry, it doesn't telling matter. It's not all, all of secrets. them. That's not all. No, of no, them. no. But the point is, I mean, everybody's heard of Berkshire. I mean, I didn't give away any secret B there. Buff, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I'd say Buffett was on uh, Squawk Box for three hours a couple days ago. Three hours. Three hours. Three hours. Six to nine. I think it was six to nine. Greg Abel was on for the first hours. It was great. One Who's of the Greg Abel. Uh, he's Buffett's successor. But one of the things he kept coming back to on cash. He said, people have entrusted me with their money. We want to be the last last man standing if things got bad. That's always why they have the cash and, and available liquidity. And he's had Nothing that. on this show that you've heard is a recommendation to buy or sell. Please consult a professional. Are you sure? You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with Chad Sturgill and Mike Johnson and our host, Tom Dupree. 
Go to our website, DupreeFinancial.com, to schedule an appointment to come see us. You can call us at 859-233-0400. That's a wrap for this hour. We'll be back with more in a few minutes. Stay tuned.